All right, what's up, everybody? We got a new camera, so I'm excited to see how this works out for us and you guys. But uh, today, we're going to jump into all things mobility. I wanted to kind of break this down, actually, a couple weeks ago, and I never really got to it. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about it. So I want to go over, when we talk about, like, movement and mobility, some of, like, the core concepts of understanding what that is going to be for people. And then when we look at addressing mobility and actually fixing mobility for people, um, like what would that protocol look like for people? So this way you can address pain or stiffness or lack of mobility, lack of stability, all that good stuff, right? So let's jump right into it. So when I always describe movement to people, the way that I always like to think about it, and this is kind of my Silicon Valley version of it, is movement is kind of two-sided, right? When we look at movement in general, we have this is what I describe as kind of the software versus the hardware, right? Um, and obviously people in Silicon Valley love that analogy, right? So here's what I mean by that. Software is what we call motor control, skill acquisition, you know, coordination, right? These are things that are, are skill sets that they need to be taught. When you look at the hardware side, these are things that we look at in uh, like traditional movement and functional movement assessments is we're looking at two kind of core components. We're looking at mobility and stability, right? And flexibility kind of comes in this conversation as well, and that's going to be something I'll talk about here in a second, right? So when we look at these two different kind of core concepts, you have to figure out on kind of what side of the paradigm are you struggling with movement, right? So here's what I mean by that. When you look at movement on a hardware standpoint, you know, you could be someone that's seven feet tall, strong, fast, and flexible. That doesn't necessarily make you good at basketball yet. It's still a skill set that you need to learn how to acquire, um, and when we think about this in relationship to the gym stuff, when you look at any exercise or movement or modality that you struggle with, there could be something more on the software side that we're looking at that is kind of the limiting factor, right? That's the linchpin. And the good news about that is that's something as a coach, it's very easy to fix because that's just coaching, right? But when we look at stuff is kind of problematic on the hardware side, that is going to be range of motion issues and or stability issues, right? Um, those things are not necessarily hard, but they are harder than software stuff for a lot of people, right? Because they take more consistency in the routine of actually fixing, right? So when you look at range of motion, this is something that I always like to kind of break down is there's there's two different camps, right? There's mobility and there's flexibility. Flexibility is what we consider to be very passive, so if I were to, you know, I'm working on a client, let's say I'm doing like a post-workout stretch and I were to grab their leg and try to throw it into as much hip flexion as I possibly could, um, but I'm doing the movement for the leg, that's considered more passive because I'm the one that's doing the work for that range of motion. But if I were to have a client lay on their back and lift their leg straight up to the air themselves, that's going to be their active mobility, right? And the reason why we care more about active range of motion is because it's going to show me what the body has control of versus what the tissue is willing to do in length, right? So the difference would be kind of the mobility is what we would call the strength within a range of motion of that tissue or muscle or joint. Um, and flexibility is just basically what exists in space there, right? Um, so not to knock flexibility or not to basically discredit flexibility in any sense, it's still important to have passive range of motion and active range of, uh, active range of motion, but really our overall goal is to increase active range of motion to a place that we're really, really close to passive range. So to kind of use that straight-legged laying on your back, lift up your leg as far as you can, if I have someone that I lift up their leg myself and I can get them to 120 degrees of hip flexion and then I have them lift it their self and they go to 60, 
that's something that I would look at as problematic because they literally have 60 degrees range of motion that still exists in space, but they have that 60 degrees, they have zero control and shrinked over. Um, and this is where a lot of injuries happen is when you get outside of your passive range of motion, obviously, but more importantly, when you exceed your active range of motion, right? So we'll talk about that today when we kind of get into some of the nuts and bolts of how do you actually fix these things? Because that's obviously going to be the overarching question for all of us. So you need to understand the core concepts first when you're kind of doing any type of self-assessment on yourself is really where is the underlying issue at? Because just like anything else in the world, and this is obviously like my big problem with, you know, the medical system in general is we tend to be very symptom focused. So when you think about mobility assessments being kind of the same kind of protocol is there is going to be symptoms of bad range of motion, but we really need to get down to the root cause. What's the problem? What's causing that to actually become symptomatic, right? Um, and when we think about like tight hip flexors for people, or sorry, uh, tight hamstrings, there's actually a lot of cases where a tight hamstring is actually a symptom of a tight hip flexor that throw through their pelvis out of place, right? And or their core or their glutes was not stable and strong enough and we lost stability in the compensation pattern of the human body was to just make that area tight, right? So another thing that I always kind of use as a movement assessment tool for myself and clients is the joint by joint rule, right? And this is really important to understand when you think about movement and mobility in general. And this basically, this principle states that there's two different kind of types of joints, right? We have mobile joints in the human body and we have stable joints in the human body, right? A mobile joint by definition should technically be able to travel in all three planes of motion. It should be able to rotate to a certain capacity. It should be able to laterally move to a certain capacity and it should be able to flex and extend. So basically go forward, backwards or up or down, right? Now a stable joint generally only likes one or two of the planes of motion, right? So if we were to start from the ground up, right? And obviously there's a lot of kind of nuances to this whole thing, but this is, I always like to teach people kind of the elementary version of things because that's where most of us lie when we're addressing some of these issues. You don't need to learn that higher level stuff. We just need to master the basics. So the foot itself, just to start from the floor, is what we call a stable joint, right? There's meant to be, it's called an arch for a reason. There's meant to be an arch at the foot, right? Just like how we would engineer a bridge to have some level of curvature because it's going to be a stronger, more stable position for that foot to be in. Now, if you have someone that has a stiff, weak foot, that's where you see flat-footed. That's where you see the pronation at the foot. Um, but just as conceptual understanding, it is a stable joint, right? This is obviously where majority of all of our balance between the toes and the foot happens to the ground, right? The ankle is a mobile joint, right? It is designed to move. It's designed to go through some level of lateral movement, rotation, very small amounts, but primarily more dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, rating forward, backwards with the knee tracking. The knee is going to be a stable joint. I always like to use this as an example when I'm talking to people. If I took your knee and I twisted it 90 degrees or I bent it to the right, I'd probably have a lawsuit. It's not meant to do that. It's primarily meant to kind of open and close like a hinge on a door, right? Now, for the nerds out there that understand anatomy pretty well, yes, there is some type of rotation capacity that does happen at the knee, but it's probably zero to 25 degrees. It's not a lot. There's no lateral capacity at the knee joint, right? So then we travel up north to the next joint. And we're going to look at the hip. The hip is the primary. The hips and the shoulders are the two biggest mobility joints in the human body, right? These are, like Kelly Starrett says this really well, they are the main engines of the human body, right? They're designed to take majority of all capacity of movement. So when we look at mobility, there is a huge demand on the hip, right? So the hip is de designed to flex and extend. It is designed to externally enter the road. It is designed to adduct and abduct. It's designed to go pretty much in every direction that we can put it. That doesn't mean it has it. It means it's designed that way. 
Now when we travel up to the next one, we look at the lumbopelvic region. That's a stable area. That's the pelvis. That's the core. That's the kind of the, the rib cage of the ceiling and the pelvis is the basement, the way that I explain it. So we want stability and strength here. The next one up is going to be your thoracic spine. Thoracic spine is supposed to be the more mobile vertebrae of the spine. Okay. Then we look at kind of the shoulder complex. The shoulder blades primarily need more stability, right? And this is probably out of all of them can be a little bit more confusing because the shoulder blade does have a lot of movement action, you know, between upward and downward rotation, protraction, retraction, and elevation depression. Um, and for all my PT nerds out there, there's going to be some type of flaring and that could be details that we don't need to talk about today. Shoulder joint is going to be a mobile joint, right? So you have to think about the shoulder complex is kind of the shoulder blade dictates how the shoulder joint functions. So this is something that we talk about like for like a bench press, for example. If you don't know how to set your shoulder blades correctly, you are most of the time going to feel some type of anterior or and or shoulder joint pain. And that's because understanding that the scapula is what sets the stability for the glenohumeral joint, right? Elbow, stable, wrist, mobile, right? So when you think about that from the floor up, stable mobile stable mobile stable mobile stable mobile mechanically that's how we're designed to be most efficient and effective so we have to think about making sure that the role of that joint has everything it needs right so if a mobile joint let's take the two biggest ones the shoulder joint and the hip joint if they don't have enough range of motion to work with the compensation pattern of the human body is going to make the two neighboring joints stiffer right and this is what we call the neighbor rule um, the neighbor rule basically states that if I'm not doing my job, I'm going to make my neighbors work harder for me, right? Um, and this is going to be something we need to understand that obviously we're only as strong as our weakest link, but our body is an adaptation machine. So compensation is totally normal and it's okay to a certain extent. Um, obviously, when I do assessments, I tell people there's a line that I draw in the sand of what I would consider to be okay versus like, eh, that's outside that threshold. So compensation is normal, but we got to remember that compensation is not going to be something that's ideal. We want to get back to this, you know, baseline foundational movement. Um, and that requires us through assessment and fixing mobility and addressing these things through movement and exercise to make sure that we're getting as close back to normal foundationally as we can, right? But when you think about found, uh, the neighbor rule, I'm sorry, it goes in inverse as well, right? Just because a mobile joint like the hip, if the hip is supposed to be mobile, and it's not mobile because it's stiff because you sit on your ass all day or you have tight hip flexors or whatever the case might be, your knee and your lower back are generally going to have a lot of pain. And this is what happens for a lot of people. There's a lot of knee injuries out there. There's a lot of lower back injuries. And then when we assess the hip for range of motion, they don't have adequate mobility. And that's a problem. But if we were to flip it over on the other side of it too, if we think about the core and the lumbopelvic region being a very stable system, if they don't have enough strength or stability or coordination to be able to maintain that, the hip and the T-spine now become stiffer to compensate for that. And once it's just like an injury, the best way to have an injury is already to have a predisposed underlying injury because there's already a compensation pattern that was created. But we think about this is once you create one compensation, the body then starts to stack these compensations. Um, and that over time obviously is something that's going to be not ideal and it's going to generally either lead to injury or it's going to leak performance, right? Um, and a lot of people out there, and I was one of, you know, I was a victim of this myself when I was young. You know, you would get this from the, the, the local trainer at the gym. They're like, hey, you know, your back's round when you're you're doing your deadlifts or, hey, your knees are coming in when you're squatting. It's harder for us to tell people movement, mobility things until they've gone to a point of injury, which is the sad part. Um, I would love to preach preventative medicine and preventative health for everybody, but some people are just so hard-headed that they, you know, they wait until they have an injury. I was one of those people. 
So when you look at movement and mobility, remember that this is the foundation to having speed and having strength and having a, just a foundation for a good training protocol requires you being a good enough mover, which is like we said earlier, is a couple things. It's stability and strength. It's range of motion. It's control of that range of motion. Then it's things on the other side like motor control and coordination and skill acquisition. So when you look at stability to kind of use the coordination example, there's a lot of times people are not in a stable position with their core. Um, and it's not necessarily because they're weak. It's just because they don't know how to kind of in space where their body's at. They don't know how to control pelvic position. They don't know how to control where the rib cage is. Um, so a lot of that comes down to some basic practice as well, right? So the, those are kind of just foundational baseline things to understand, right? Is like understand that there's a software and a hardware side to movement. Understand the joint by joint rule that not every single joint needs to have incredible amounts of range of motion in every direction. The mobile joints do. The stable joints, obviously, we're going to look for a little bit more stability in the areas that they do not move in, right? Meaning if the knee doesn't laterally bend, let's make sure it has as much lateral stability as it can get, right? So even though it doesn't move there, we want to prevent injury and we want to think about that by bulletproofing the areas it doesn't go by, be creating more strength and stability in that joint and or muscle group around it, right? So let's talk now about how would I fix a mobility issue, right? How would I address if I have a tight hip flexor or if I have rounded shoulders or if I have tight ankles, right? So this is something that I call release, lengthen, strengthen, right? This is something I just kind of made up probably about five years ago and I call it RLS, right? And then there's kind of a lifestyle piece to this as well. And I'm actually gonna open up with the real, the lifestyle piece first. So the release, length, and strengthen is kind of a three-step protocol that, you know, we teach our coaches here. We obviously give this to clients to kind of work on to fix and address mobility, injury, or pain, or whatever. Um, but the lifestyle piece, the reason why it's more important is you got to remember this. This is something that I always like to remind people of is, you know, the average gym goer in our gym, for example, our most popular membership is three times a week. So if you have three hours a week of having fantastic mobility protocol, a great training session, but then you have the 165 hours that are left in the week, that 98% is obviously way more important than the 2% of time that you're training, right? So I always like to tell people that I don't give a shit how cool your mobility program is if you just trash it on the other 98% of your life. So we have to look at things in kind of dimension number one of our six dimensions that movement and exercise are in the same bucket, but they are different. Movement is more important, right? So little things like getting out of the chair, like maybe working on your desk on one knee or two knees or switching knees or walking a little bit more on your phone calls or laying down on your stomach and kind of being in a little bit extension on your laptop. Like the things that you spend majority of your time, obviously I'm not going to preach the sleeping because like you're asleep for those eight hours, but the other 16 hours that you actually have control of being able to control consciously your movement, spend more conscious awareness around how do I position myself throughout the day? Because if you sit on your ass for a living behind a chair and you do that for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, it doesn't really matter how cool my hip flexor protocol and mobility program is. It's not going to work that effectively. So we have to understand that from a lifestyle standpoint, your general movement and position is going to dictate more on how your range of motion is than your actual movement mobility protocol will be, right? So that's just kind of a, a disclaimer for us to really talk about first, right? So now let's jump into the RLS. These are the three steps that, you know, over time I've kind of refined down on mobility programs. And, you know, we look at things like warm-ups and cool-downs and intra-workout protocol and separate days for just mobility and recovery. Um, RLS is something that you can kind of throw in by itself. You can throw it in as a pre-workout. You can throw it as a post-workout. You can even throw it in between, right? 
So R stands for release, right? Which is basically anything that's inside of the soft tissue umbrella is something that we're going to consider to be a release, right? So, and this is something that when I hire coaches, I always like to kind of use this as my opening question is if you were to sell foam rollers door to door, explain it to me, right? What, what, what is it? What does a foam roller do? Sell me a foam roller. And majority of all people tend to say the same thing. And I said this for the longest time until I really understood, you know, conceptually what myofascial release was. Um, that, hey, you know, you roll it out and it's going to break up kind of some of the tissue in the body and it's going to realign some of these fibers maybe. And, um, and it's going to help increase the range of motion, right? And it's going to alleviate soreness and some of these very vanilla statements that I think would sell anything. Um, here's the thing that you need to remember. The muscle is the slave to the nervous system, right? So really what soft tissue is, and that could be uh, massage, that could be foam rolling, that could be trigger point, that could be uh, these new trigger point guns, like the Hypervolt and Theragun, things like that. This could be active release technology, so ART. This could be Graston with scraping tools. There's a million and one ways to actually put soft tissue under an umbrella. Just remember this, at the core concept foundationally, they're all the same. What's happening is you're creating some level of pressure at a specific area, joint or muscle or tendon or whatever it is. Muscle obviously is going to have a lot more response. The nervous system is going to sense the intensity of that pressure, and it's going to tell that muscle, hey, this kind of hurts, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a relaxation response. The nervous system is going to kind of be the key to unlock tension. So what happens when we release is we're not necessarily creating more length in the muscle. The muscle still has the same point of insertion and same point of origin, so I can't necessarily lengthen a muscle. Breaking up scar tissue, if you were to talk to a doctor, they'll laugh at you because breaking up scar tissue is not something that's fucking easy that you can do on a piece of foam, right? Like, it takes a crap ton of pressure to be able to actually facilitate that. So really what's happening is the nervous system is kind of holding on to this fascial restriction and tension. So when you roll it out and you spend some time and give enough pressure there, you're not forcing it, not trying to get pain. Obviously, that's a big thing with stretching and foam rolling that are parallel. You don't roll, you don't stretch for pain. You're trying to get into an area, and once you feel the release, and here's what I mean by that. Let's say you start foam rolling your quads, and you're at a 9 out of 10 on the sensitivity scale, and that's the only thing in two minutes goes down to a 6 or a 5. You've acquired the quote-unquote release that we're looking for, right? If you're deconditioned, older, um, really, really stiff, that release takes a lot longer. If you're someone that's healthy, that someone's done a decent job of mo uh, mobility and maintenance, it could be 30 seconds, right? Like it is different for everybody. So the reason why I don't put so much structure on protocol of reps and sets and time is because that is subjective um, based off a lot of people and their response time to that. So one of the things that I would just you know encourage you to think about is when you're doing your foam rolling and you're doing your release section, spend enough time until you get that kind of quote unquote relaxation response. Once you get that, move on. You don't need to do anything else there, right? Unless you're doing like a good old Swedish couples massage and you just want to do it to feel good, go for it as long as you want. But if you're looking for the most bang for your buck and being efficient, as soon as you get that response, you move on. So now the question is protocol of when do I apply release? You can do this before workout. I would tell you right now that I think the before workout is probably the most uh, overrated thing that I see in the gym. Nothing really grinds my gears more than seeing people on their phones and rolling their calves at the same time. Like it's doing nothing. The whole point of a warm up is to get your body warm is get your body going, get the muscles warm, get the nervous system primed for movement. So I'd rather something that's a little bit more dynamic. I'd rather something that's a little bit faster. But that being said, if you are in a very corrective state, meaning there is a lot of mobility stuff that needs to be addressed, 
it's not a bad idea to throw a little bit of that there in the pre-workout, right? So if I'm doing squats, like front squats today, and I have, you know, something that's a little bit more ankle and knee dominant than maybe a back squat, then maybe, yeah, maybe I'm going to roll up my calves for a little bit before I get into it, right? Um, I personally, which is going to lead us to this next part, I'm a bigger fan of the release section kind of being in between my workout. And this will make sense when I talk about the lengthening and the strengthening phase. Um, but for me, a lot of people, it's like if we're doing strength work, we should have 90 seconds to four minutes, maybe, or three minutes of rest in between sets already. So you have a couple options. You can chit chat. You can sit there. You can go on your phone um, or you can work on some mobility. And then every set that you get into that exercise, it should feel like it's actually improving with range of motion. Post-workout is always a great time. I try to think about everything post-workout being a little bit more parasympathetic, something that's actually down-regulating the body. So I would not try to do anything that's really putting a lot of pressure on. So maybe these are things where you would actually choose the softer foam roller, the softball versus the crossball. You know, things that are not as high drive and sympathetic as things that I try to personally avoid more towards cool down. Um, And then obviously foam rolling could be done anytime. I foam roll probably more in front of a TV um, or in my living room sometimes than I do at the gym, right? So it's something that you can kind of always throw into the protocol. Now, when it comes to the release section, it can be kind of twofold. It is binary almost in a sense, but primarily the objective of foam rolling should be on the tight muscle. So if I have, we're going to use the hip flexor for today's example. Um, when you have a tight hip flexor, you need to roll out the quads because the rectus femoris is the one quad that actually does knee extension and hip flexion. So that is a hip flexor. Then you have the iliopsoas, which is a lot harder of a muscle to really kind of pin down or trigger point or do any type of release works, but you can do like a softball two inches down from the belly button, two inches away from the belly button, and that's kind of a sweet spot where you get some level of release. Um, but you would always do that and on the tight muscle because we're trying to get that nervous system to basically say, hey, just unlock the muscle a little bit so I can kind of relieve some of that tension, right? Step two, so R is release, L is going to be lengthen. Um, step two is lengthen, right? Which is pretty straightforward because it's in the name. We are trying to lengthen the muscle that is restricted. So if I have a tight hip flexor, I am going to be doing hip flexor stretches. Pretty straightforward, right? So if I'm doing something in the beginning of the workout, obviously generally more dynamic stuff. So something that we do here inside of our foreplay, lunge, reach, twist. Great way to kind of open up the hips, open up T-spine and get a little bit of rotation into the hips as well. Um, and that would be something that we would consider to be more dynamic. Um, if I were to do something that's a little bit more static, um, that I would do maybe in the beginning of the workout or in between workouts, like distraction stretches are great. Um, you know, Kelly Starrett's the man with this one as well. So definitely got to give him credit here. If I'm doing like a half kneeling banded distraction for the hip flexors is I would put the step into the band band would be at the very top of my hamstring, whatever side is banded. That's the side that's going to be down with its knee. And then I'm going to squeeze the butt, pull the ribcage down, focus on my breath, and I'm going to let the band kind of do the work of forcing me into actually hip extension and getting some level of lengthening and stretch in the hip flexor on the anterior side. Um, and then obviously when you look at post-workout, these are generally the times where I promote more, you know, one, two, three, four, five-minute stretches and hold these positions, um, get comfortable, allow it to be a little bit more down-regulating on slower breaths, longer holds, more parasympathetic work. Um, and then also like, you know, it could be once again, just like foam rolling, it could be done all the time. So when you look at lengthening for hip flexors for people that sit down for a living, you working behind your desk on one knee or both knees, um, uh, is a great way for you to get into hip extension, turn the glutes on, turn the core on, um, and to add some type of stretch without it being this very intense yoga session. It's just something that, Hey, maybe I do it, you know, 20 minutes every hour. It makes a huge difference because you're putting that muscle into a lengthened position. And this sounds dumb when I say this, but if you want to get a muscle out of being restricted, 
you have to put it in its full range of motion. You have to put it in its length and position more often, right? Muscles need to be trained in their short end and they need to be trained in their length and end. Most of us only spend time in kind of that middle 70% of range with exercise or daily movement. And that's why over time that gap starts to close on from both short end and length and end. So lengthening is going to be a huge one. This is probably the most straightforward one. Now, the last one is going to be the strengthening section. This, for me, is the most important piece of what you will do. Now, here's one thing to remember just from a concept standpoint. A muscle is weakest at its end range of motion. Now, there is two ends, obviously, to range of motion. Um, For those that are watching this on YouTube, if I open up my arm, my bicep is at a fully lengthened position, right? Right, And then depending, obviously, where I have my arm in space, the tricep is in a short position. Now, if I close my arm and bring my hand on top of my shoulder, that's the bicep at its shortest range of motion. It's weak here, and it's weak at its end open. It's strong in the middle. If you ever watch somebody arm wrestle, everyone gets stuck in the middle, right? So most mu- – not most muscle. All muscle is going to be strongest in its mid-range of motion, right? Um, there's a guy that I get kind of sent to uh, – sent stuff every once in a while, Dr. Joel Seedman or something like that. He's like the – the guy that does the 90 degree ISO eccentrics, whatever he calls it. Um, not to knock his stuff at all, but really where he's coming from just to kind of make it the spark notes version of it is yes, of course the muscle will be strongest and you will get the best development when you're at the mid range of motion. Now to that be said from a range of motion mobility standpoint, it doesn't mean that we avoid the ends, right? We still need to get that end range isometric contraction. We still need to get end range concentric and eccentric movement. Um, and we need to do it loaded. We need to do it slow. We need to do it in body weight. Because the more exposure your body gets in a contraction at every range of motion, the more the brain goes, oh, we're getting a contraction here. This must mean it's actually something that's usable. Okay? So here's one thing that most people screw up when I talk about the strengthening section. It is always going to be the antagonist that we're trying to strengthen. So if I have tight hip flexors, to use today's example, I would release my hip flexors by rolling the quads, softball trigger point, maybe my psoas or ilicus. Um, number two is I would lengthen it. So I would do some type of stretch for the hip flexor. And then number three is I would strengthen it, but I would strengthen my glutes, not my hip flexors, right? Um, not to discredit that because I'm about to talk about that in a second, but why I would strengthen my glutes is the reason why your hip flexors have become stiff is because the glutes are actually weak in the opposite end. Every muscle has an antagonist, right? There's muscles that are agonists, like synergistic muscles that work with it. And there's muscles that do the exact opposite motion. The hip flexors obviously flex the hip. The glutes extend the hip and abduct and externally rotate and posteriorly tuck the pelvis, right? But that being said, if the glute's not good at its shortened end range of motion, what's going to happen is the opposite side will just become a little bit stiffer and weaker there, right? And that's the compensation that ends up happening with movement mobility with people. So when you look at fixing and addressing any of your mobility issues, number one is always try to kind of assess and reassess and figure out what maybe symptom versus cause might be. Then release the area that you feel is tight. Then lengthen the area that you feel is tight. And then three is strengthen the opposite muscle. Because when you get that opposite muscle to get strong at its end range, over time, the brain starts to get enough input to go, oh, okay, we're actually getting contraction here. So this is actually normal range of motion. What the brain does, it's kind of like if you don't use it, you lose it kind of scenario. If it doesn't explore its normal range of motion more consistently, it just goes, okay, this is not something that we're using. So I'm going to become a little stiffer and or weaker here, right? So always think about when you're strengthening that you're strengthening the antagonist muscle. But that being said, just because a muscle's tight, you need to remember, like for a hip flexor a lot of times, there's a lot of times a muscle can be tight and weak. 
So mobilizing it and strengthening it is going to be really important. So really the big kind of takeaway that I would say for everybody is spend more time at end range of motion for every muscle and joint. Because the more contraction you can get at all these end ranges of motion, the more the brain starts to tell the body and the muscles that, hey, this is something that we use pretty consistently. So I'm going to make sure you have enough range of motion so we can always play here. And this is where majority of, I think, injuries really exist for people is because, A, they're not doing enough kind of activation and contraction at these end ranges or training it, just skipping it in general. Um, and when you get into those ranges of motion, sometimes your body's weak there. Um, and anytime you put your body into a weak, vulnerable state or unstable state, yeah, there's a good chance of injury is going to happen, right? So when you think about training it and strengthening it, remember, there's kind of three basic phases of motion. There's isometrics, there's concentric, and there's eccentric. Isometric will always be the easiest. This is basically like there's no movement in isometrics. So if I were to just like flex right now, that's an isometric contraction. So I like to do end range isometrics because it's a great way to, without load or additional external load, get contraction of the muscle. Second one that's easiest to learn and best to adapt to is eccentric. This is actually where most muscle building is done. People forget about this. That's the negative phase of the motion. So if I'm doing a push-up on the way down of the push-up would be the eccentric phase. So using eccentrics and tempo is a great way to add strength at both end range. And this is why at Functional Lifestyles, I do so much eccentric and I do so much tempo. It's a great way for the body to build coordination and awareness in that space, in that range. But more importantly, there's a lot more bang for your buck in that range of motion anyways. Then the last one, which is what are the, you know, that's the pretty ones, the ego drivers, the concentric phase. That's, you know, it's the up phase of the push-up, right? It's the up phase of the squat. It's pulling the deadlift. It's whatever. Um, it's actually better to think about it backwards, right? Isometrics would be better. Eccentrics would be second. And then obviously concentric would be last, right? So when you look at training these range of motion, that was going to be kind of the protocol that I would have preached for you guys. Um, and that's kind of it, right? I don't want to spend too much time because obviously it's something I can talk a lot about, but think about if I were to give you one little thing to kind of leave with is the more you can go through full range of motion daily, the less you'll have to spend on mobility planning and programming, right? Because the best movers in the world are the ones that just have daily movement built into their life versus I have a really good workout three times a week and I fuck up the other 165. You're going to be working backwards your entire life. So just focus more on daily movement, spending time in different positions, sitting in the bottom of a squat, right? Doing half kneeling stuff, get out of a chair, get out of things that are soft, you know, go barefoot more often. You know, do things that are hard. Do you know? Just do things that get the muscle and the body into different spaces, and I guarantee you'll feel a lot better. Right? All right, guys. Well, I hope you like this. As always, if you have any questions on it, feel free to shoot us a DM. And as for that, have a great day, and I'll see you guys next week.